Father, we ask that now as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. We pray, O oh God, that in attending to your voice, that you might change us and mold us and shape us and encourage us so that we could be your faithful, obedient witnesses in this world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So I want to begin by asking you a question. Have you ever watched a Christian trying to evangelize a non-Christian and found yourself asked, it's funny, found yourself thinking, there has got to be a better way to do this than that. And, you know, maybe it was because they were being manipulative or they were arrogant or they were coercive or they were just awkward or cheesy, but you found yourself thinking there has got to be a better way to do this than that. Eugene Peterson tells this great story of his first experience with evangelism. Now, before I tell this story, Eugene Peterson was one of the great pastors, one of the great writers on the spiritual life. And he was also the translator of the Message Bible. But when he was in the first grade, a bully named Garrison Johns picked Eugene out to be his victim. And this is what he writes. I had been preparing for the wider world of neighborhood and school by memorizing, bless those who persecute you and turn the other cheek. I don't know how Garrison Johns knew that about me. Some sixth sense that bullies have, I suppose. Well, most afternoons, he would catch me up and, and beat me up. He also found out that I was a Christian, and so he taunted me with Jesus, sissy. I arrived home most days bruised and humiliated. My mother told me that this had always been the way of Christians in the world and that I had better get used to it. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Mom. <laughs> she also said I, I was supposed to pray for him. But one day when I was about seven or eight, Garrison caught up with me on the way home and started jabbing me. And that's when it happened. Something snapped. For a moment, the Bible verses vanished from my conscience. And I grabbed Garrison. And to my surprise in his, I was stronger than he was. And I wrestled him to the ground. And I sat on his chest and I pinned his arms to the ground with my knees. He was helpless and at my mercy. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fists. It felt good. And I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson in the snow. This is Eugene Peterson, you know, the Message Bible guy. It's awesome. He said, I, I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it. So I hit him again, more blood. And then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say I believe Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And he said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. <laughs> now, I think when Christians start talking about evangelism, a lot of us start to get a little bit uncomfortable. We get unsettled. And I think a lot of us do because on the one hand, there's been so many bad examples of what's not to do by obnoxious Christians who do more damage than good. And we don't oftentimes want to be associated with that kind of obnoxious sort of in-your-face Christianity. And so many of us shy away from it, but we haven't seen an alternative model of what it looks like to really engage somebody in a way that's winsome and compelling. 
Others of us, maybe we've just kind of withdrawn from uh, non-Christian relationships in general, and so we've stopped talking to people about Jesus altogether. I can remember when I was in Albuquerque, I was preaching a sermon on evangelism, and I told a couple stories in the sermon of, uh, you know, sharing the gospel with somebody uh, 20 years ago, and after the sermon, my, my wife, Alicia, she said, you know, uh, you should probably come up with some more um, uh, modern examples than 20 years ago, you know, but I had been in the church for so long that I, I had been out of touch with a lot of non-Christians, and so I just hadn't been sharing the gospel, and I think a lot of us can relate to that. And, and I think a lot of us have seen really bad models of people being coercive and manipulative. And maybe even, you know, when you were growing up in the church, uh, you sat in a Sunday school classroom as uh, some well-meaning Sunday school teacher with the flannel graph, put some flames on the board and described to little first graders about the glories of heaven contrasted with eternal torment and hell. And then asked the students, how many of you would like to go to heaven? You know, and all of the children, of course, raised their hands because what else are you going to do? if you're a child, you know. But there is a lot of that kind of manipulative and coercive and well-meaning but misguided ways in which people go about sharing the faith. And what compounds the whole thing is that we live in a culture, and maybe if you're investigating Christianity, you've already begun to think this, you know, we live in a culture that thinks, look, I, I'm glad that you are a Christian. I am glad you believe what you believe and that it's meaningful for you. But why do you feel a need to take your views and foist them on someone else? And so it just feels almost immoral to go out and try to evangelize, try to convert people in the 21st century in America. And so because of all these things, I think a lot of us are hesitant, we're shy, we're kind of withdrawn when it comes to evangelism and sharing our faith. And so what I want to do today is I want to share with you a passage from the book of Colossians that I think will give us both a challenge as well as encouragement when it comes to evangelism. And this is incredibly important for us as a church family, because as we move forward into the future that God calls us into, yes, we have got to be a community that loves each other well. We have got to be a community that serves our neighbors, that promotes mercy and justice in our communities. But we have also got to be a people who are bold and winsome in sharing our faith publicly and sharing about the gospel. And so what I want to do is I want to share with you uh, kind of like I want to talk with you about evangelism today from three different angles that I think will be both a challenge as well as to an encouragement. And number one, what I want you to see from this text is something of the universal message that we have to share. Second, we'll look at our unique role that we have to play. And then thirdly, we will talk about the primary actor when it comes to evangelism and bringing people into faith and into the kingdom of God. So let's first talk about the universal message that we have been given. Look at uh, back in your Bibles in Colossians chapter 1, verse uh, 23. I want you to see what uh, Paul says here. He says, uh, this is, by the way, this is the very end of the great hymn of praise to Christ. And after this great hymn of praise to Christ, Paul turns and he talks about his ministry of proclaiming Christ in all of the world. And look what he says. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which, listen to what it says, which has been proclaimed in all creation or in some translations to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
And then down in verse 28, he describes his ministry of bringing the gospel to all peoples in this way. And listen how he puts it. Verse 28. He says, him we proclaim, warning all people and teaching all people with all wisdom that we may present all people mature in Christ. And here is the universal message that we have to proclaim. It is the message about Christ, about his death, his resurrection, and all that it means for all of creation. Now, the key word, I think, in this passage is this word, all. And Paul repeats it multiple times. He talks about all people and all people again and teaching in all wisdom so that we may, again, present all people mature in Christ. And in these verses in chapter one, uh, Paul, Paul uses this word all. In the Greek, it's the word panta. And he uses this word multiple times in the passage. And before he talks about kind of the comprehensive or, or, or he talks here about the comprehensive scope of the gospel message, it's to go to all people. And then in verse 23, he says it's to go to even all creatures. Uh, there was a, uh, a great um, a monk in uh, the early centuries of the church whose name was St. Francis of Assisi, who took this call to preach the gospel to all creatures very literally. And he would oftentimes be found out into the fields uh, preaching the gospel to the birds up in the air and the beasts in the field. Uh, I was thinking about this week, and um, I realized I hadn't shared the gospel with my dog Brutus. And so I sat him down, and I shared the gospel with Brutus. And if you know Brutus, he needs Jesus. He is a sinful dog. And uh, Brutus actually was converted. So... Um, he looks like a convert, doesn't he? I mean, look at what a cute, look, he's just so handsome, such a good dog, you know. But, um, but this, this comprehensive message of Christ is based upon and flows out the comprehensive vision of Christ that Paul gives earlier in the great hymn of praise to Christ. And there he emphasizes Christ's rule over all creation by virtue of the fact that through him all things were made, and then his role of the Lord of redemption by virtue of the fact that through Christ all things have been redeemed. And again, he emphasizes this again and again. By him all things were made, all things were created. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. And in that in all things he might have the first place, in him all all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. So just pause for a second and think about this radical vision of Christ we've been looking at over the last three weeks. Christ is Lord over every sphere of human existence. He is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord over redemption. He is the Lord over all things. And because of that, the church has been given this message and, to, and been sent to take out this message and to proclaim it to all people everywhere and to compel them to believe it. And here uh, Paul is, is echoing the words of Jesus from the Great Commission where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And so Jesus here puts us on notice. He says, look, I have a mission for you. I have given you a universal message and you are to go out and to proclaim it everywhere and compel all people to believe it. 
Now, again, if you're kind of new to Christianity, you're investigating Christianity, you're listening to this, you might think, look, this is my problem that I have with Christianity. You know, you, you can say you believe in Christ. I think that that's good. It's nice that that's meaningful to you. But why do you have to take your beliefs and try to impose them on other people? You know, uh, don't try to convert people, you know. Uh, You know, it seems to be be saying something like your beliefs are the only right ones, and so everyone else needs to believe what you believe. And uh, so you say, look, that's my problem. You're trying to convert people. But what I want to show you is that there is a problem with that problem. It's a very, very big problem. And the problem is this. Going out and seeking to convert people to a comprehensive view of reality is unavoidable. It is unavoidable, and almost everybody is doing it. You know, in his uh, big book on the resurrection, uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has this throwaway line where he puts it like this. He says, quote, he says, Jesus' resurrection is often seen as an immoral doctrine because it appears to legitimate Christianity over against all other religions. Because, you know, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is the unique and only son of God. And so the doctrine of the resurrection, says, right, appears to be a triumphalistic doctrine. You know, how very undemocratic of God, people think. You know, without realizing that that idea itself is a local, almost tribal, Western Enlightenment view. Now, do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, yeah, Christianity is a comprehensive view of reality. It's a faith position. It's a view of spiritual reality based on faith. But listen, the modern view that says that all religions are only subjectively valuable and that no one religion is objectively more true than any other religion, that also is an unproven view of things that is based on faith. Do you see that? And, and, and so if it's narrow to say that one religion is the right one, then it's also narrow to say that one view of religion is the right one, namely the view that all religions are relative and none of them uh, has a true comprehensive view of reality. And so don't you see that when you tell people that they mustn't try to convert people to a non-innate comprehensive view of reality, you are doing the very thing you forbid. Or put it like this, uh, you know, Uh, When I was in Turkey, I had dinner with some Muslims, and it was kind of funny because the Muslims who invited us over, we had gone over to their house, and we had a desire to try to convert the Muslims. And then the Muslims who had us over were trying to convert us. And they knew what they were doing, and we knew what we were doing, and we enjoyed, you know, kind of the forthrightness of our relationship. We both had views that we wanted to dialogue and debate and convince each other of. And then when I lived in Albuquerque, we had some good Mormon friends, and they had us over for dinner often. And we, you know, we knew they wanted to try to convert us, and we wanted to try to convert them. And they knew what they were doing, and we knew what we were doing. You know, we both desired to convert each other. And then I had some secular kind of humanist friends, and uh, we would have dinner with them. And when we would be together, you know, I would have a desire to see them come to view reality my way. And then they would try to impose kind of their view of my 
religious beliefs in their way, namely that it was just a relativist, or, or that it was all relative, and that Jesus Christ wasn't the Son of God, and that all religions are equally valid, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they were trying to convert me, but the difference between my secular humanist friends and my Mormon friends and my Muslim friends is that they didn't realize that they had a comprehensive view of reality that they were trying to convert me in. They thought they were presuppositionally neutral, and that is a fallacy. It is inevitable. All people have an, a view of reality, and you can't get by in life without at some point trying to convince others of how you think and believe about things. And I think it's interesting as we you know, kind of move into uh, the you know, 2020, you know, I think more and more people, especially on the secular left, are realizing this, and there becomes more and more of a push actually for people to try to push their views on other people, to indoctrinate people. And I, I think it, it, what they're, they're coming to realize is that all people have a vantage point and that some vantage points are destructive and bad and need to be jettisoned and abandoned, and some vantage points, some views of reality are true, and they lead to human flourishing. And so when it comes to Christianity, what is the view that we believe? What is the view that Paul was announcing and proclaiming? Well, it, it was the view that God had acted in human history that in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, in his death and in his resurrection, the fullness of God there was dwelling among the poor and the powerless, the marginalized, the slave class, the lowest and low. God had entered into humanity to teach, to reach out, to love people. And then through his sacrificial self-giving death on the cross to defeat darkness and sin and death and shame and to absorb the darkness in himself so that he might break its power finally and to exert his power over all the other powers in his resurrection from the dead to say that love, not hate, wins, that light, not darkness, will have the final say in the world. And this news about the event of Jesus' resurrection is the news that brings reconciliation to all things. This news has the power, for, for, according to Christians, to renew and to reconcile us with ourselves so that we begin to restore our own wholeness. It, it has the power to reconcile our relationships with others. It has a power to reconcile our relationship with God and to bring us back into a relationship with God. And ultimately, this this news brings us, it will ultimately bring us hope and joy and, and security and love and glory. And this is the news that Christians have to share this universal message about Jesus Christ. And you can say that, you know, you can debate whether or not there is a God who could act in history. And if there is a God, whether he acted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you could, you could debate whether or not that actually happened. But what you can't debate is if it did happen, whether or not people who knew about this should go about and let others know about it. Of course we should. I mean, if you had the cure to cancer, wouldn't you go out and let other people know it? And, and so this is, this is what Paul views as our vocation in this world to go out and proclaim Christ, teach all people, warn all people so that we can present all people mature in Christ. He says, this is what I am toiling and struggling for. And so that is our universal message. But secondly, what I want you to see is that 
we have not only been given this universal message, I mean, it's been entrusted to our church. It's been entrusted to the worldwide church. It is our vocation. It is our responsibility. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so now I am sending you to go out and to bear witness of the healing, reconciling love of God among all people so that other people can come to know the love that you have experienced. So we've been given this universal message, but I also want you to see that we've also been given a a unique role. I want to talk to you a little bit about your own unique role in spreading this message. Now, I want you to notice in our text that Paul talks about his unique role that he was given. And look at how he puts it in verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So when he begins to talk about his role, number one, he talks about his sufferings, and then he's going to talk about a stewardship. But look at what he says about his sufferings. It's kind of this interesting thing. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Now that immediately raises some red flags for us because we ask, How on earth could Paul's suffering somehow fill up what was lacking in Christ's suffering? And how on earth could Paul even describe Christ's sufferings as having some sort of lack that he as a person could fill up? I mean, he just said that in Christ, the fullness of God dwelt. How could measly little Paul fill up something that the one in whom the fullness of God dwelt has done? And I think what all the commentators say is that Paul certainly is not talking about adding anything to the work of Christ that he accomplished on the cross. Instead, I think what Paul is talking about is the work of reconciliation in the world. It begins with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But this work of reconciliation is carried out by the work of the church as we go and preach the gospel. And Paul is saying that as he is going out and doing this work of preaching the gospel, he is doing so in a way that shares in the sufferings of Christ. In other words, Paul is embodying in his whole manner of engaging in his gospel work in a way that reflects the self-giving, sacrificial, willing to suffer love of Jesus. Paul is saying, I am reenacting that same sacrificial love as I'm carrying out the gospel in this world. But then he goes on and he says this, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So here he talks about a stewardship or a responsibility that was given to Paul for the sake of the church. Now, of course, Paul here is given a very unique responsibility. I mean, the grand scheme of the unfolding plan of redemption of God. Paul played this very special role to be the apostle who broke kind of like the people of God out of a insular kind of Jewish focused thing to be a worldwide international faith made up of of people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue. And Paul was the architect. He was the forerunner of that kind of work. 
And Paul was a brilliant mind. He had this incredible gift mix, a set of experiences. He had this profound encounter with the risen Christ that radically and dramatically changed his own life. And he was trained in rhetoric and he was trained in Judaism. He, 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 he was an intellect and he was a passionate heart. And, and he had all of this incredible gift mix and God was able to use that and it entrusted him with a special stewardship of the gospel. He had a unique role to play in spreading the gospel because of the stewardship. But Paul is not the only one who has a unique role to play. What I want you to see is that you also have a unique role to play in the spread of the gospel. You know, there are unique experiences that you have. There's a unique story that you have. There, there's, there's unique formation and, and, and ways in which you've experienced life that make you uniquely suited. There, there's, there's a certain network of relationships that you have. There, there, there's the, the location you live on your block, the place you live in your city, uh, the college you attend, the, the, the city you live in, the, the place of employment you're a part of. And these all give you a unique stewardship, a unique responsibility to carry out the message of the gospel. And listen, here's what I want you to see. It's easy to think about somebody like the Apostle Paul and uh, of course, relative to Paul, um, you know, we're all, you know, mere novices. You know, I mean, that guy was such a towering intellect. And, and uh, you know, I look at his output and his toil, and he was darn impressive, right? And most of us, are, we're, we're not there. Most of us are not there. None of us are there. You know, um, when, when people are reading and pouring over writings that you've, you've written in 2,000 years from now, then, you know, we'll talk about whether or not we are in the same league as the Apostle Paul. But, um, but listen, God doesn't only use Apostle Paul's. God is pleased to use all kinds of willing instruments. And he desires to use you and me wherever we are at and wherever we may find ourselves. You know, I was thinking about uh, my own family and, you know, my, my family of origin, my parents, uh, the Swanson clan, my mom and dad, uh, Mary and Dave, uh, they, you know, they've never been like these great evangelists. They've never been these articulate evangelists who were able to go out and, you know, uh, you know, have this compelling, you know, kind of like articulate, winsome witness, and they were not schooled in apologetics. And yet what they did have, God was able to use, and what they had was the gift of hospitality. My parents would always open up their homes, and our home became the second home of so many of my friends at various and sundry times. Uh, we had Cousin Robbie living with us, and then Scott and Chris Mancini, and uh, lots and lots of my friends came and lived with us. But one of, one of the family members that came and lived with us were my cousins, Bobby and Vanessa. And they had just lost their father. And uh, they were kind of like in this state of disorientation. At that time, they were still in high school. And they had lots of questions. And they didn't grow up in a family of faith. They didn't know about Jesus, really. But they came into our family, and they lived with us for, for a series of months. And I remember at the tail end of that time, uh, we got in the car, and I turned on the radio, and I, I put on this song. And the song uh, had the phrase, the Lord is my shepherd. 
And my cousin Bobby asked, Josh, what does it mean that the Lord is my shepherd? And from there, on our, on our car drive over to a friend's house, I shared with him the gospel. And at the end of our car ride, uh, he said, Josh, I would like to become a Christian. And then my cousin Vanessa in the back, she said, well, Josh, can I also become a Christian? And I was able to share the gospel with them. But, you know, I, I was just one piece in their story. The primary agents, the primary kind of like uh, role players in that story were my parents that opened up their home and welcomed them in. And so what I want to encourage you with is this. Listen, when people come to faith in Jesus, oftentimes it's after having seven or eight positive interactions and experiences with other Christians. And there are very few Christians that I've met that I know that are these winsome, articulate evangelists that are super intelligent, that can get all the apologetic answers down and all this stuff. But what you can do is you can be an agent of the sacrificial love of Jesus by how you live on your street. And you can be okay with letting people know that you go to church, that you're a follower of Jesus, that you're a Christian. And you might take time to to share with people about how Christianity has made a difference in your life. And, you know, if you will open up your life and you'll serve people and you'll, you'll love neighbors and extended family members and roommates well, you may find that there are opportunities to invite people maybe to come to church with you, maybe to listen into our uh, streaming service and to learn about Jesus. But the point is, is that God has a role for you to play. And so we've been given this universal message and we have also been given a unique role to play in sharing the gospel. So what is the role that God has given you to play? But the primary thing, the final thing that I want you to see in this text is not only uh, the, the universal message we've been given, the unique role we've been asked to play, but finally I want you to see the primary actor in the whole drama of evangelism. And the primary actor It's not you, and it's not the Apostle Paul. It is God. You know, it's interesting. Back in in this text, it's very clear that everything, when it comes to the proclamation of Christ, when it comes to this good news going out into the world and being spread in the world, that the initiative lies in God's own hands. Notice, I want you to see in verse 27, It was God who chose to reveal himself and his goodness and his love, not just to the nation of Israel, but to all the peoples of the earth. To them, God chose to make himself known. This was not the Apostle Paul's choice. It was not a human choice. It was God's choice to disclose his heart. And then in verse 26, even Paul's calling to go out and to play his unique role, that in and of itself came from God. He says this was a stewardship that came from God, and it was always for you. And then in verse 29, he puts it like this. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, which he he powerfully works in me, even as he's going out and doing his work of planting churches and of teaching, you know, the the church and grounding them in Christ and of going into, uh, you know, new cities and proclaiming Jesus to people who've never heard. Paul is saying all of that work is done in the energy and the power that is provided for him outside of himself with the power of God. Listen, the mission of the church has always been birthed and it's always grown out of the mission of God. God is a missionary God. 
He is on mission to reach out to people who are far from him with his passionate heart of love for this world. Mission always begins with God. You know, it's been said that it's not so much that God's church has a mission as it is that God's mission has a church. God has invited us to join with him in his own mission to to seek and save those who are lost. When God ultimately enters into the world in Jesus and Jesus says, here is why I have come, not, not for those who are well, but for the sick. I have come to reach out to you. I long for you. I am searching for you. I want to to, to bring you to myself. God is a missionary God. He's on mission in this world. And listen, that is incredibly good news because it means that very often in, in the lives, in the hearts of the people around you and me, your neighbors, the people who you're interacting with at a coffee shop or back when you could interact with people at coffee shops and uh, at school or roommates or in family or whatever, that very often you discover that God himself is at work in people's hearts in ways that you have no idea of. I can remember um, this was brought home to me so clearly when I was a very young Christian and we used to go out and go street witnessing uh, down in downtown Long Beach. And so we were a bunch of, you know, high school students, 18, you know, 17, 18 year olds. And we would go down to downtown Long Beach and we'd break up into pairs and we'd share the gospel. And I remember on one occasion, uh, there was a brand new student who was a foreign exchange student from the Czech Republic. And he was from a you know, very unchurched background, an unchurched world. And he lands here and he, his English isn't that great, you know, and um, doesn't really know much about Christianity. And so what do we do? Well, we take him out street missing with us. <laughs> and, um, and so um, on this occasion, when we were breaking into Paris, he wound up going with me. And as uh, was typical, you know, throughout the night, we would walk up to uh, couples on a date. We'd interrupt their date and we'd say, you know, can we share the gospel with you? And they'd say, no, get out of here. Why are you bothering us? And we'd say, oh, we're being persecuted for the gospel because we bother those people on their date, you know. And um, I remember this, this night that we, we just said, no, nobody wanted to talk to us. And finally, at the end of the night, I, I think I had one older guy who was just like, yeah, I'll, I'll listen to you, you know. And so I, I shared the gospel with him. And um, Yuroslav, the Czech Republic student, is sitting, you know, he's been walking with me this whole time, you know. And, and I, I'm sharing the gospel uh, with this guy. And, and he's like, uh, no, thanks. I'm not interested. He walks away, you know. And I'm like, I just feel so deflated. You know, and then Yaroslav looks over at me and he says, Josh, I would like to become a Christian. And I'm like, man, I wasn't even sharing the gospel with you. You can't become a Christian, you know. And, um, but God was at work in his life. You know, Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. And oftentimes we think that we have a harvest problem. That, you know, or that we have a labor problem. You know, there's not enough people out, you know, do it, or that we've got a harvest problem. There's not enough people that are interested in Jesus, you know. And, uh, you know, there's, there's so many laborers out there, but there's just, uh, you know, the no, you know we're, we're all trying to preach on hardened ground. But listen, Jesus would say, no, the harvest is plentiful. 
there's all kinds of people in communities, maybe in social groups, people who have political opinions and ideologies that are so different from your own, and you have no idea there are people that are hungering, they're thirsting, they're asking questions about ultimate reality and about this world, and God is at work in their hearts and lives. And sometimes it just takes us engaging with people, letting them know, yeah, I'm a Christian, or I go to church, and, 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 and somebody's saying, well, tell me more about that, you know, or something like that. But very often people are, are, are open, and open in more ways than you might realize. But here's the most encouraging thing I think I can share with you, is that evangelism doesn't depend upon you. You know, your kids coming to faith in Jesus, ultimately at the end of the day, it doesn't rest on your hands. You don't have that kind of power and control. You know, and your, your, your parents or your, your neighbors or your friends coming to Jesus, at the end of the day, you don't have the kind of power and control to open blind eyes and to make the dead live, that kind of power only rests in the hands of God alone. But here's the good news. God is at work in this world. He's at work in people's lives around us. And so we are not in this work alone. And, 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 and you know, I, I think about, you know, think about your own story. I mean, how was it that you ultimately came to faith in Jesus? Just think back to your own life. I look back at my life. There, there was, it, I'd never had a, a very compelling, you know, articulate, winsome, argumentative uh, Christian that came into my life that convinced me to be a Christian. But what I had was a, a group of people that I, I started going down to a surf contest, and there were Christians down there, and I met them, and I was invited into youth group, and then I interacted with other Christians and, and, and youth pastors, and, 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 and I had a praying grandmother, and I had parents that, that loved us well and that opened their home with hospitality and took us to church, and all of those many people all had a role in bringing me ultimately to faith. And I bet you have the same story, a variety of people playing a role in your own story. And so here, here's what, what I want you to know is in the same way that God, you, and you look back on your story, God was responsible, right? It wasn't you. And I want you to know that as you are engaged in a variety of different ways, you know, people's lives, just loving them well, you know, being confident in who you are in Jesus, that you can trust that God is at work in people's lives and continue to pray that God would use you, that God would open the hearts and lives of people around you, that he would come and work and move and draw people to himself. And let's be a community of faith. Let's be a church that is confident and bold in bearing witness about Jesus in this world. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you and we thank you, we praise you, O oh God, that you have not left us to ourselves, but you have acted in this world through your son, Jesus. And thank you, O oh God, that you brought people into our lives who loved us, that taught us the way, that drew us to your son, Jesus. Thank you, God, for the people that you brought, that shared with us about your great love. And I pray, God, that you would use us to be agents in this world of your love. Help us, God, to be bold. Help us to be confident. And help us to be faithful witnesses of who you are and what you're about in this world. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.